So we begin our reading in John chapter 13 and verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I remember when I was a teenager, one day I was out in the yard. One of the little girls from the neighborhood was riding her bike up our road and the gravel was uh, bigger rocks and rather thicker right there in that part of the road and she hit that looser gravel with her bike and she kind of slid into the rocks and she was fine she was going pretty slow and everything but she laid her bike over in the rocks i looked over just in time to see all this happen before i could even haul her over to see if she was okay or anything i noticed that as she hit the ground in the rocks and immediately just sat in the rocks and started to kind of play with the rocks. I, so I kind of got a chuckle out of it because it was one of those, I, I meant to do that kind of a thing, like it was planned or something. Now, obviously, it was not planned. If she would have come up to me ahead of time and said, you know what, I'm going to ride my bike up, and when I hit those thick rocks, I'm going to lay my bike over, and I'm going to play with the rocks there for a few minutes. Then I would, have, uh, I would have thought, well, that's a weird plan, but I would have agreed that it was a planned out thing at that time. Now, the reason that uh, so much focus on that kind of incident is because it plays into what we're looking at here this morning. You know, I wrestled with this passage quite a bit, trying to see how are we supposed to look at this? What is it all about? One commentator thought it was very much about Judas. Obviously, Judas is a major character in the storyline here. But he found just about every way that you could think of that Jesus was reaching out to Judas to stop Judas from doing what he was doing. I don't think that that's the case. Other authors uh, pointed out that that it was God's sovereign plan and Judas was uh, part of that sovereign plan unfolding. And I think that would be much more likely than the other. But as I wrestled with the, the different elements of the passage and continued to dig and learn more about the different elements of the passage... I had the conclusion to make of what, where do we come at it from? What angle? Is it to focus on the sovereignty of God, which is clearly within the passage? Is it to focus on a huge missed opportunity in the life of Judas? I mean, this guy walked with Jesus for three and a half years, heard everything that he taught, saw every miracle, and participated in many things, and yet could betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Even though that's an amazingly missed opportunity, I, again, do not think that that is the focus of the passage. But actually, I think what the focus of the passage is, 
is that this, kind of like that little girl, she slid in and she tried to make it look like it was all planned. I meant to do that. Well, Jesus is in some circumstances, but these are circumstances that he did mean to do. Now, this is going to be very important in the lives of the disciples and can be very important in our life, too, if we understand what is being conveyed here. Judas has obviously been an unbeliever this whole time. Judas is somebody that we learned back in chapter 12 that he was uh, kind of an amazing hypocrite because nobody suspected him of anything that we can tell. Now, obviously, Jesus knew what was in him, but none of the other disciples doubted his authenticity. He duped everybody. But we look in, back in chapter 12, we find uh, an incident where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes and she anoints Jesus' feet with this very costly perfume, the amount of which would pay for one common worker's labor for an entire year. So it was very spendy. And Judas at that time speaks out and says, why wasn't this sold and used to give to the poor? But then John pointed out that wasn't really why he was protesting it. He was protesting it because he was the treasurer for Jesus' ministry. He was the one who was the keeper of the money bags. And he regularly helped himself to that money that was within those bags. And so he would have liked a whole year's salary at his disposal to be able to tap into. But you know what? It's an interesting thing. If you read one of the other Gospels, you'll find that when Judas made that complaint, every other disciple followed him in it and began to complain until Jesus corrected him. These other apostles trusted Judas. In fact, I find it interesting in the passage that we read today, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, nobody says, I bet it's Judas. Uh, it says that they have a conversation amongst themselves about who do you think that it is. Uh, Mark, in his, his recording of the dinner that night, said that each disciple would ask Jesus, is, it's not me, is it? In fact, even Judas would step in and say, it's not me, is it? Just so that he didn't stand out as the guilty culprit. And Peter, he's like, not sitting close enough to Jesus, but he, you know, Peter, he wants to know. And so he's like, John, ask him, ask him, you know. But even after he reveals to John who it is, when Jesus tells him, go do what you're going to do, and he gets up and leave, everybody thinks well of him. He's the one with the money bag, so he's probably just going to buy food for the supper that we're going to have. Or he's going to give money to the poor because they do that on a regular basis. And so everybody thought Judas was up to some noble cause right up to the point where he went out to betray Christ. The hypocrisy is amazing. As we look at what's happening here, the disciples are within hours of having their whole life turned upside down. And Jesus is going to spend some of these teaching times with them, trying to prepare them for that. In fact, for Judas to go out and betray Christ and to hand him over to the authorities, that would be one more feature that would look like everything was coming unraveled Everything was falling apart. They had been hoping that He was the Christ, the Messiah, that would come and take the throne of David and oust the Roman leadership and that they would have the kingdom restored. But now it's going to look very much different. And Jesus has been warning them that it's going to be very much different. He's told them that He's going to go into the city and that He's going to be arrested and He's going to be tried and He's going to be put to death and three days later He would rise again. But you know what? There's just so many things that they're going to experience now that are going to be hard for them to go through. And I think that the whole point in why this is so emphasized in this passage is to show the plan of salvation. Now, we might think of something a little bit different when we think of the plan of salvation. We often think of things like the Romans Road or how does somebody experience this salvation? 
But actually what I'm trying to point out is that our salvation and all the events that led up to it are planned out by God. That He is in control. Even when it looks like everything in the disciples' lives are unraveling, God is still in control. And you know what? Everything in your life or mine that feels like it's unraveling at times, God is still in control. If we see that the way Jesus helped His disciples at this point, it will help us in our points of confusion like that as well. And that's exactly, I think, what Jesus is doing is that even the betrayal of Judas... It is used by God to bring about the Gospel and our salvation. I think what's happening pretty clearly with Judas is Judas latched on to Jesus when he thought he might be the Messiah, when he might be the King one day. Because as being with one of the twelve, he's going to have power. He's going to have prestige. He's assuming there's going to be wealth that goes along with this. And so there's lots of advantage to being one of the twelve if Jesus ends up being king. But as you get closer and closer to the cross, Jesus is making it very clear that He's not headed toward a crown. He's headed toward a cross. And I think that that ointment on the feet of Jesus was just the last straw for Judas. He's not going to get any wealth or fame or prestige out of this. And so he decides to get what he can out of his position in this situation. And he goes and offers to betray the Christ for money. Now, as we look through this passage, what is Jesus' main point as he keeps bringing this up to the disciples? His main point to the disciples, I'm very certain, is that this is all part of the plan. And he wants them to know that this is all part of the plan. Because when it feels like everything starts to unravel, they need to know that there's still a plan, that God is still solid, that Jesus Christ can still be trusted, even when one of our own is betraying Him and turning it back on Him and selling Him. There's still a plan in place. And they need to learn the lesson that Joseph learned back in the Old Testament when he says, you might have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because they're going to see a lot of evil transpire before their eyes and their world is going to be shaken. But in the end... Jesus is doing some things right here that's going to help them to latch on to that plan and realize their security. We see it in chapter 13 and verse 19. Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. And the word He there actually is in our English translations, but it's not in the Greek. He says that you may believe that I am. So he's probably using that name of God, that I am, as another I am statement here, claiming to be God in the flesh. He says, I'm telling you this now. One of you is going to betray me. None of you have even expected, anticipated, even thought it was possible that any one of you twelve is going to betray me. But I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll realize that this betrayal does not mean that the plan of God is unraveling. This betrayal is actually part of the plan that God is using to accomplish His salvation in our lives. We see him do a similar thing when we get to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 28 and 29 says, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And so on a number of these different things, Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you about this now. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to be gone. So that when I'm gone, you'll realize it was all part of God's big plan. So nothing's coming apart here. I'm telling you before it takes place that one of you is going to betray me that's sitting right at this table. 
so that when it does take place and you see it happen, you'll know life isn't crumbling here. I've got this. This is all part of the plan. And you know, when we feel like those moments, when it seems like life might be starting to unravel, God's still got that plan. And He's still got you. And He's still got me. Well, Jesus did focus an awful lot on this betrayal. In John chapter 13 and verse 2, in the passage we read last week, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then in verses 10 and 11, he pointed out again, said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Remember, Jesus came around to wash their feet, and Peter said, You're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter says, well, then not uh, just the feet. I'll take the whole bath. And Jesus says, nope, you've already had your bath. You're clean. And he's talking about them individually and as a group. You're clean, but notice what he says. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And then in verse 18, where we started our passage today, he says, I'm not speaking of you all. As in them all being clean and them all being blessed in the washing of one another's feet. He says, I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, most of the commentators would point out when he says, I know whom I have chosen, that he's not talking about chosen as in a saving way, but chosen as in chosen as one of the apostles. I don't think that that's the case. Because what Jesus is saying here is He says, I know whom I have chosen. In other words, He's saying, I know whom I have chosen and I know whom I haven't. And the fact of the matter is He had chosen all of them as apostles. Even Judas is listed back when He had chosen them to be apostles. He clearly chose Judas as an apostle. But I think what Jesus is saying is deeper than that. I know whom I have chosen. In other words, He's saying, I know who my believers are and who aren't. I know who is a possessor of the salvation and who is the hypocrite that is faking it. And we know that from all the way back in John chapter 6. In verses 64 and 65, it says, But there are some of you who do not believe. It says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to Him by the Father. And so He looks back at that time and points out to them that some of them don't believe. And then he goes into talking about Judas. And he knew who didn't believe. And he knew who it was who would betray him. Because they're the same person. Judas would not believe. And he would be the person that would betray him. And all that falls under the sovereignty of God as only those granted to him could turn. But in verses 70 through 71 of chapter 6, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so Jesus has put some emphasis on the fact that there was one of the apostles that was going to betray Jesus. All the way back in chapter 6, he pointed that out. There's somebody that was going to betray him. Now, coming up to the feast and coming up to the time when Christ would go to the cross, he really emphasizes that Judas was going to be betraying him. And that this was part of the plan. Judas, in his own desire to gain, would play right into the plan of God and fulfill the plan of God. You know, you you cannot but fulfill the plan of God. God is going to be glorified either by your salvation or by your judgment. And no matter how much you fight against Him, you will only fulfill His purpose in His plan. How much you willingly go along with Him in faith and truth, you also only fulfill His purpose. But as we look at it here this morning... Why? Why this, why this focus on the plan? Well, it's for the benefit of the apostles. 
It's so, as I mentioned, that when everything looks like it's going to start to unravel, they're going to realize in the end it wasn't unraveling. It was all coming together. And that's the point he wants to make to them. Now, there's two reasons that we need to see the plan. The first reason is that it strengthens our faith. Notice what it says in verse 19. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. He says, this is going to help you to believe. This is going to help bolster your faith. In the passage that we looked at in John chapter 14, where again he says, I'm telling you this ahead of time. Now, why did he tell them ahead of time? So that when it does take place, you may again believe. And so you recognize that, wow, this was all part of God's plan. I thought everything was coming apart. No, like I said, it was only coming together. On verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is a quote from Psalms. And in this psalm, this is a time in David's life that deals with a man named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was a, was a counselor of David's. In fact, he was a very respected counselor of David's. The Bible even says that Ahithophel's advice was taken almost like the Word of God. When this man gave advice, you followed it. And uh, we're at a time in David's life when his son Absalom is trying to take the throne. And so he was uh, kind of a schemer. He went out and he sat at the gates. And people would come into town and he'd say, Hey, introduce himself to him. What's your business? And they'd tell him what they were coming to see the king for. And he says, You know what? I wish the king had somebody in place to help you with that. But he really doesn't. He says, Man, if I was a king, I would make sure that this kind of thing was taken care of. And he began to win over the hearts and minds of people of Israel. He did that for four years. And at the end of four years, he felt he had the power and strength to rise up against his father David, which he did. And David, when he heard about it, he left. And he had another friend, a good friend, that came to visit him and came to go with David. And David said, you know what? Go back home and dwell in safety. He says, you're not really going to be of any great help to me here. He said, but you know what? You can be of great help to me back there. Because if you're standing there and you can listen to the advice that Ahithophel gives to my son Absalom, you can upset that advice. You can contradict it or you can do something to try to make that come to nothing. And he said, not only that, but there's a couple of priests that are loyal to me. And if you hear of something, you can get word to them and they'll get word to me. And so David gives them this advice. Now, Ahithophel, uh, things play out in that way. And Absalom at one point wants advice from Ahithophel about what to do. And he tells them what to do. And then David's other friend, his name slips in my mind at the moment, he was asked by Absalom too. He says, well, this is what Ahithophel told me to do. What should I do? And he's like, ah, he says... That guy's smart, but I don't think that's the way to go this time. I think you should go this other direction. And he gives him advice to go the other direction. And, and Ahithophel, I think, my, my guess is that he understands that um, Absalom's plans are going to end up crumbling and David's going to end up back on the throne. And where does that put Ahithophel? Now, the reason I think that he thought that way is because what he did at that point when he hears that he took the other guy's advice instead of his, he went home. The Bible says he put his things in order and he hung himself. And so when you look at the disciples... Why would Jesus tell them, look, there's a betrayer in our midst? Why would that bolster their faith? Well, one, it's going to bolster their faith because Jesus told them ahead of time that this was going to happen and that it's part of the plan. And so when they see it happen, then it'll reinforce the idea that it's part of the plan and things are not falling apart here. And so that would strengthen their faith. But not only that, but in, in this quotation of the psalm, 
he points back to the Old Testament in the life of David. Remember, Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus is going to sit on David's throne throughout his millennial kingdom. He's the promised one, the son of David. And so Jesus, in quoting this, connects himself all the way back to David. And so they look back and they say, look, there was a betrayer in David's life too. And there's a betrayer in Christ. Maybe it's not so weird that there's a betrayer in Christ's life. If it already happened to David. And not only that, but then when they see these things unfold, because what does Judas do? Hangs himself. When he gets to that point, oh my, what have I done? And this would kind of tie right in with our adult Sunday school. Because if you want a sorrow, a grief that is a worldly grief and not a godly grief, it's one that does not involve a repentance and it leads to death. And Judas had that ungodly, worldly kind of a sorrow where he says, oh man, what have I done? The only thing left to do is to kill myself. And so he goes out and hangs himself. And so now at that point, what would the disciples have? They would have that it's part of the plan. Jesus told us about it ahead of time. And look, it unfolded just as he said. It also relates back to this psalm. It was a prophecy about what would happen to Christ. And it was consistent with what happened to David. And Judas even went down the same path as Ahithophel did. And so the the apostles' faith would just be bolstered. And there's other events that would bolster it as well. You know, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. But you know what? Even in doing that, Judas fulfilled prophecy about Christ. Because if we look back in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, it says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And that's exactly what happens with the thirty pieces of silver that Judas was given. Judas goes to them and they pay him the thirty pieces. And then he goes and he brings them to Christ and he betrays the Christ. But he's got his money. And then afterwards he says, What have I done? And he takes the money and he goes back to the temple, back to the religious leaders, and he says, I don't want this money. And they say, well, hey, you were paid. That's, that's your money now. That's not our money. We don't want anything to do with it. That's yours. You deal with that. And Judas takes and he throws it into the temple and he goes out and he hangs himself. Well, the religious leaders look at that money and they say, well, what do we do with that money? We can't take it back into the temple. That's blood money. It was paid for somebody's death. And so they took the money and they went out and they bought a potter's field. And that was what the use of the money went to. And so exactly as it was foretold by Zechariah. So, when we look at this plan of salvation unfold, what is Jesus' point in bringing up all these things, having such an emphasis on the betrayer? It was to tell them ahead of time so that they could see that it was part of this amazingly intricate plan that God has for bringing about their salvation, which is going to do what? Strengthen their faith just as He told them it would. It would help them to believe. But not only does it help them to strengthen our faith, it also encourages our mission. Notice what it says in verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. When I was going through this passage and through this passage and through this passage, I kept wrestling with this verse because it seems out of place. Because it just seems like a, a, some random verse that's just kind of thrown in there. But, but it's not. 
Because when you stop and think about it, once I got the big concept of what was going on in the passage, then this became more clear. What is going on? Remember, Jesus is pointing out these things, pointing them out ahead of time so that these people will believe, so that they will be strengthened in their faith. But it's not just their faith that's on the line. Everything's on the line right here. Who makes up the foundation of the church? It's the apostles. Who gives us the teaching of the New Testament that, that instructs us in the ways of Christ and points out how He fulfilled the Old Testament and all these things? It's the teaching of the apostles. And so it's not just the apostles' faith that's on the hook here. It's the whole future of the church. It's the whole future of the Gospel is all wrapped up into this. And that's why Jesus is doing exactly what He promised would happen before. He says, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what Jesus is doing at this very moment right here. He's building the foundation of His church. He's making sure that foundation is solid. And He points out to them in this part, whoever receives the one I send, which would be who? It would be the apostles. But He could have said whoever receives you, like He'd done in the past. But He broadens it now. It's not just the apostles. Whoever receives the one I send. You see, we've been given the Great Commission handed down from Jesus to the apostles and on down to us. We are sent once today. We're the ones with a mission today. The apostles have fulfilled their mission in their time. We're the ones with a mission to take the Gospel to the world and take the Gospel to our homes, our families, our friends, our communities, our co-workers, our fellow students. We're the ones with that mission. And notice what Jesus says, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You see, He focuses on the whole mission He's making it clear to them so that they will, in their own faith, be built up because in that faith, they need to go out and share Christ. And it's only the people that receive them and their message that will hear the Gospel and receive Christ. And only the people that receive Christ that actually receive God. There is no way to receive the Father without the Son. And there's no way to receive the Son without the message that the apostles would bring. That's just like what it says in Romans chapter 10. How can they hear without a preacher? It's that mission that He's called us to that He's encouraging in this passage as well. <clears throat> and God uses, God uses the faltering of people, even the wickedness and sinfulness of people to accomplish His own purpose, His own mission through us. You know, you can see it clearly again in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. And God does some miraculous things. He had told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit comes in power on the day of Pentecost. And it's uh, clear that that's what's happening. And Peter stands up and tells them what's going on. That it was the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And then he goes into preaching the Gospel to these people. And he says, men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now notice what Peter preaches there. He says, this Jesus is delivered up according to what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
And when Jesus was delivered up, when He was taken to the cross, this all happened according to God's very definite plan and His foreknowledge. But then He goes on to say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, even these people that in their own self-serving and self-aggrandizing way went against Jesus to try to get rid of Him because of jealousy and envy, it is through their actions that God used to put His Son on the cross. And so, whose will was accomplished? The religious leaders? Yes, they wanted Christ crucified. And they got their way. But whose will was accomplished? God the Father's? Yes, because He's the one that ordained that His Son would go to the cross to pay for our sins. And so when the religious leaders, acting of their own will and their own desires, completely fulfilled the will of God just as He declared it to be. And I don't think it's any mistake that Peter on this day has the courage to stand up and say, this is all according to the very definite plan of God. Jesus gave them these things ahead of time so that when they saw them all unfold, they could see the hand of God in all these things and recognize that this was a fulfilling of the plan of salvation.